Gresham College presents The Volatility Hierarchy of Capital Flows by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. The subject tonight is perhaps the most esoteric of all the lectures uh, we've had so far. And I do promise to draw a line here and say it's a, that's the, we're not going to get any more esoteric uh, than that. Um, the subject is the hierarchy of international capital flows. Now, for many people, investors, bankers, academics, perhaps not ordinary people, but for many people, international capital flows resembles that cinematic trio of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And tonight's lecture is on whether this distinction, or any distinction, is really justified. The two most important forces for globalization have been information and finance. And these two have long been bedfellows. A London banker cannot finance a railway in Canada with Russian money earned by selling oil to Japan using Korean tankers unless she knows a bit of information about the parties involved, their credit quality. Indeed, to a very large extent, banking is part of the information industry. If the owners of capital knew everything there was to know about those who need capital, we wouldn't need the middlemen, middle in so many ways. Let's talk a little bit more, though, about how information has evolved, and then maybe we can go back and see uh, how that compares in finance. With information today, we are increasingly freeing ourselves from worrying about the medium. We are less concerned about how people are informed, just that they are. It is said uh, that my mother and father's generation knew exactly where they were when Kennedy was shot, or Martin Luther King. Because entwined in that memory was how they heard it. And for many, it was similar. The same news broadcast, say, on the BBC, if you were in the UK. Today, the variety of news providers or mediums, it's almost endless. You can get news today on your mobile telephone. And as uh, Prince Charles has discovered, stories don't need the traditional press to spread. That's an interesting story in its own right. I don't mean about Prince Charles, but about information. To some extent, information is more democratic, with more voices being heard than would have been heard before. And on another level, society is splitting into affinity groups who only hear what they want to hear and have fewer shared and socialized experiences with others. But let's discuss that maybe afterwards when we have a drink. The main point I want to make here during uh, this talk is that the world is a much more connected place, in part because of the media, and we talk of the media rather than the precise medium. This transformation has not occurred in finance. In finance, we worry about the precise form of capital flow. A couple of years ago, the United States was celebrated for attracting substantial foreign direct investment as European companies bought up U.S. companies lock, stock, and barrel at the peak of their prices. Today, the U.S. is chastised for borrowing too much as Asian investors buy up U.S. government bonds. 
Both these flows actually have an equal impact on the balance of payments, but we view them very differently. In the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, one of the conclusions of the finance ministries of the G7 countries was that one of the problems, a key problem, was the absence of a bond market in Asia. And there's been much work done in recent years on trying to establish an Asian bond market. They say there was too much volatile, short-term bank and equity flows and not enough long-term bond flows. In the UK, our current account deficit is growing and increasingly being criticized. But the foreign direct investment that finances this deficit significantly is seen as so desirable that it's kicked around by both sides of the EMU debate. The no camp says that this is proof that we don't need to join, and the yes camp says this is what we're going to lose if we don't join. There is a clear hierarchy of capital flows, which has a very strong bearing on the way we think about it, our attitude to it, and public policy. Conventional thinking has it that foreign direct investment the buying of companies, the sale of companies, is good. Equity portfolio flows, purchases and sales of shares are sometimes bad, and short-term bank loans are ugly. The first is encouraged, the last is limited, and there's some ambiguity about the rest. At the root of this conventional idea, is a view of the volatility of these different flows, of how short-term they are, of their propensity to sudden stops. But it's interesting to ask where this idea of the volatility of these flows comes from. There is, in fact, precious little high-frequency data on the flow of international capital around the world. It's not an empirically-based idea. It's largely based on the presumption that price changes are caused by flows. Prices go up because people are buying things, and therefore if prices are volatile, it must mean that flows have been volatile. And if there's more volatility in share prices than the price of a factory, say, that shows you that flows in shares are more volatile. There's also the powerful imagery in our head, when we think of foreign direct investment, we picture someone building a factory on a greenfield site, bricks, mortar, cement mixer, and we think that's far more stable and slow-moving activity than the roulette wheel of financial markets. But I call this the fallacy of flows. Prices and flows are not nearly so directly related. Let's imagine that some bad news comes out. Traders mark the price down, and traders and non-traders agree with the new price. The price will drop suddenly, but there may be no flow. A flow only occurs between parties who have a disagreement about the price. Prices can be volatile with no disagreement about value and no flows. And prices can be stable with plenty of flows, plenty of disagreement. The volatility of flows has less to do with the volatility of prices and more to do with the degree of disagreement 
about price and value. Now, the, this degree of disagreement relates to three things. The size of information asymmetries. How much more do I know as, a, say, an owner of a company or manager than you as a potential buyer? The extent of legal and prudential controls. Let's say you want to buy a company and the competition commission says you need to sell a part of it. And the indivisibility of the instrument. And by that I mean there's more likely to be disagreement about a decision to buy a factory if your decision is do I buy it or not, as opposed to if I buy 1% of it or 2% of it. Now this alternative framework for the volatility of flows, for thinking about the volatility of flows, suggests that the buying and selling of foreign companies would in fact be no less volatile than other cross-border flows. And in fact, should be more volatile. There are large information asymmetries in this market between the managers of companies, competitors and shareholders, compared to the average ordinary shareholder receiving the same information from their Bloomberg and CNBC screens. There are many prudential controls and due diligence people have to do influencing whether you buy a new company or not. And companies are less easily divisible than securities. This idea, counter to the prevailing thinking, is supported by some empirical work. Using newly available high-frequency data of different capital flows between the US, the Eurozone, and the UK, the, and these are the three largest suppliers and recipients of foreign direct investment. This chart shows a distribution of monthly FDI, which for these countries is primarily, in fact, M&A flows, it's a blue line, and portfolio equity flows, the red line, from Europe into the US. It suggests that equity portfolios are more bunched around the average, whilst uh, M&A flows are what the statisticians would call more leptocurtic, more fat tails, small numbers of, of modest average-type flows and a few large, big flows or very tiny flows. Relatively, this data suggests that equity portfolio flows are in fact smoother and foreign direct investment lumpier. It's argued that this analysis may not apply to every country, not apply to developing countries where the markets for firms are often small, underdeveloped, and many legal and market restrictions apply to the buying and selling of companies. Of course, if you think back to the theory we developed earlier, these are the very arguments which would say that the flows would be volatile. However, it's hard to prove. The data isn't really available for looking at FDI in emerging markets. So let's leave the theoretical framework for a moment and look at some more empirical data. There is a concern that whether foreign direct investment flows are more or less stable, that they are significant and volatile hedging flows associated with them. Surveys of corporate treasurers suggest there are grounds for this concern. For certain activities where there are no natural hedges, partial hedging of foreign exchange risk attached to balance sheets and dividends can be very significant. This is one of the most recent surveys of corporate treasurers, looking at the amount that they're hedging 
uh, and the maturity of the hedge. The maturity of the hedge is on the vertical um, line, and the amount is the horizontal. Uh, let us take uh, the biggest number there, 44%. That's the second line from the bottom. That is saying that some 44% uh, of uh, their derivative activity was related to partial hedges between 1% to 25%, with a maturity of between three and six months. And the key message here is that hedging is almost exclusively short-term. Over 80% of corporate hedging is for maturities of less than one year, and 60% for less than three months. Why is that? Well, hedging is expensive, especially when we're talking about developing countries uh, where interest rates are very high, reflecting the risk premia, the costs of hedging are high. I think it's also, though, that firms appear to believe that they will have time to exit the country when things get bad. They believe they're insiders because of the nature of the investment they have, because maybe they're close to government. So instead of hedging a foreign exchange exposure from the beginning or continuously, they often add to their risks by putting retained earnings, their dividends, on deposit in the local currency to earn the higher interest rates. And they wait for signs that the risks are growing. And when these risks rise, they grab what they can and bolt for the door at the same time. Of course, this further aggravates financial market stress and could force a country into a devaluation. The long-term hedging may smooth capital flows, but short-term hedging, occurring as risks are already rising, could aggravate them, and short-term hedging is prevalent today. This doesn't entirely appear to be rational behavior amongst the corporate treasurers. But I think what's going on here is not just about finance costs. It's also about institutional economics, or maps, perhaps more prosaically, internal office politics. Imagine you're the regional treasurer of a large multinational. The decision to invest in your region, which will make you more important, is associated with your view that things aren't as risky as the market thinks, as people think. And if you're confident in that belief, which you have to be to win the argument and the investment, expensively then going to expensively hedge your exposure appears to undermine your confidence, to suggest that really you're not that confident, even if it's a prudent thing to do. By the time, later down the road, that you convince yourself that you were wrong, that you're on the verge of a crisis, now you should hedge. It's often the wrong time to hedge. Costs have got much higher. Of course, then they still do it. Because the issue is not about the financing costs, but the political cost of what does it look like back at the head office that I didn't hedge just before the crisis. And that's why when we look back, we find that corporate treasurers tend to be underhedged as crises begin and overhedged afterwards. New empirical work suggests that as a result of this last-minute hedging, at times of general market stress, countries which have previously boasted a large proportion of their capital flows in their safest form, foreign direct investment, appear to suffer more than others, and certainly no less. This is the exact opposite conclusion of the buying a factory is safe school. 
Now, this complicated chart shows the correlation between whether a country received a large proportion of FDI flows in the last three years, the preceding three years, and whether the currency is under pressure today. It's a rank correlation. And while it's hard to read this chart and understand it at first glance, there are a couple of things you should note. First, there's no clear negative relationship. Countries that have had lots of FDI flows aren't the ones not getting the currency risk, having low currency pressure. We spend only half the time or less below the zero line. On average, in fact, this line is positive. And more importantly, the peaks of this relationship are related to periods of global market stress. So in August 98, September 2001, the currencies most under pressure were those which have previously received the greatest proportion of their capital flows in the form of FDI. They're paying a penalty as a short-term hedging and dividends are being repatriated. Let's turn to that subject finally. Because I think along with short-term hedging, the behavior of dividends can explain the somewhat bitter and disturbing result. The mobility of retained earnings, the profits you've made from your foreign investment, is often recognized. It's often dismissed as a small flow with a focus on the hedging of balance sheets. However, this ignores the reality that corporations can build up to five, six, seven years of retained profits and then repatriate it all at the same time in one go, suddenly. And if the earnings and interest rate levels are both high, the level of retained earnings can quickly become a multiple of the original investment. Imagine that earnings growth in a country, a developing country, and nominal interest rates are both at 15%. It will take just five years before the retained earnings, the profits, equal the size of the original investment. Now, you're thinking 15% is quite high these days. It certainly sounds it, given how uh, we fear uh, deflation in some parts of the world. But even today, interest rates are above 15% in many emerging markets. In Brazil, in Russia, in Indonesia, in South Africa, in Turkey, in Venezuela, corporates are paying uh, higher interest rates. So for some of these countries, a large proportion of what appears to be the FDI inflow in the balance sheets of their countries, the stock of FDI is in fact footloose cash deposits. This leads us to an interesting summation of where we are. The more governments offer inducements to attract foreign direct investment, inducements that increase their rate of return, the more FDI flows we made up of the most mobile element, retained profits. It's possible to conjecture a new equivalence theorem, which says that the more governments try and attract FDI flows by offering abnormally high rates of returns, and exchange rate regimes achieved through high short-term interest rates, the more FDI will exhibit the equivalent volatility characteristics of short-term external lending. This analysis suggests two policy responses. First, host countries may need to be more restrained in the incentives they offer to attract FDI. 
and should not offer these incentives in the hope of attracting more stable flows. Second, host countries could provide fiscal incentives for governments to reinvest their retained earnings when they amount to more than the dividends of, of one year. The fiscal instrument would need to be persuasive rather than draconian to allay fears that the parent company would not get its money out. It would allow annual profits at least to be repatriated in the good years. But hopefully something that would limit the storing up of profits on deposit for many years. If, for example, deposits in excess of two years' dividends paid a higher rate of tax than dividends that are reinvested, it may provide the kind of incentive we're talking about. Let me come to a conclusion. It's commonly thought that foreign direct investment is the most superior form of financing for many countries. It can lead to a transfer of skills and good practices, and it's often thought to be a more stable form of finance than short-term external borrowing or cross-border portfolio equity flows. Bricks and mortar are less easy to shift than share certificates. As a result of these views, foreign direct investment is often encouraged with significant fiscal and environmental concessions. However, the added illiquidity and desirability of FDI means that the rate of returns offered to attract FDI are so high, so high as to create an incentive for companies to actively manage their retained profits, to flow of retained profits, in a way that adds to the instability, ultimately, of cross-border flows. When the local company sniffs a devaluation, several years of retained earnings may be withdrawn suddenly, adding to downward pressure on the exchange rate. Ironically, the development of deeper and more open financial markets with hedging instruments does not help in the first instance. The short-term hedging of balance sheets made possible by the deepening of your market in the short term, made more short term by the institutional process, can actually seriously aggravate a crisis. In their financing aspects, there is greater equivalence between FDI and short-term external borrowing than often appreciated. The higher the rate of returns offered to attract FDI, the more FDI flows are made up of cash on deposit, and the more they will behave similarly to short-term external debt in their speed of departure when risks rise. In part, we're uncovering yet another problem caused by having artificially high short-term interest rates as a need for a financial risk premium in a small, open economy trying to have its own monetary policy. If countries wish to encourage FDI flows over others, they should only do so on the grounds of clear skill and knowledge benefits, and less on the perceived stability of these capital flows. Rather than financial inducements, which are open to corruption in countries big and small, DeLorean, Huntington, and British Aerospace are not Nigerian companies. Rather than financial inducements, governments should concentrate on financial stability. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk